0: The title of this morning's message is Night Patient Suffering. Patient Suffering. Beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Oxymoron. It's kind of a funny word that you hear infrequently, if at all. In fact, if you you ask the average person to define oxymoron, I think our gut instinct is to assume it means a really, really, really big moron. As if sure, sure we think, you know, uh, oxy means ox, moron means moron. So oxymoron is a really big moron, as in I sure hope the new preacher from Philadelphia is not an oxymoron. But oxymoron is a phrase or a figure of speech which pairs together two contradictory terms, brings them together. So jumbo shrimp is an oxymoron. Icy hot, oxymoron. Soft rock is a definite maybe as an oxymoron. And so is resident alien, uh, steel wool, paper towels. You get it? It's, It's two thoughts that just don't go together. Oxymoron is why we drive on parkways and park on driveways. It's an oxymoron. It's why the third hand on a watch is called the second hand, and when God saves us from calamity, we knock on wood. It's all oxymorons. The union of two contradictory terms or ideas. In James chapter 5, God pairs together two words that appear to be the opposite, two words that, if we are honest, form the most burdensome oxymoron in the history of the world. Those words are patient suffering, patient suffering. In verse 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, consider the prophets. And then he goes on to say, consider Job as well. And this peculiar pairing is most vexing because there's something about it that just kind of rages against our natural instincts, meaning we are never patient in suffering. In fact, we don't want to be patient in suffering. We want other kind of adverbs attached to our suffering. We want speedy suffering. We want expedient suffering. We want swift suffering. We want spa-like suffering. But James does the unthinkable here. He unites patience and suffering and calls us in our darkest moments of life, in our most difficult periods, in times of inexplicable pain and incomprehensible agony, to embody that oxymoron. And as exhibit A, he points to the prophets. And as exhibit B, he points back to Job, the great Old Testament sufferer who we've spent the last six or seven weeks getting acquainted with. So, in the fifth chapter of James, Job's story comes to us. It comes in the hands of another pastor, probably probably the little brother of Jesus himself. Half-brother, of course, but the little brother of Jesus. And he's writing to the Jews that have been converted to Christ. Paul called them the true Israel of God. And they've been dispersed throughout many different nations. And they are, at this point of history, an oppressed people, an impoverished people, a persecuted people. And because they have been displaced and impoverished and unwelcome and they're poor, they suffer. And so, enduring suffering is a major theme in this book. In fact, enduring suffering are the bookends within the book. The book opens in chapter one, where James says, Consider all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then, here we are in James chapter five, the last chapter, where he's basically saying, Be patient in suffering. And that's what brings the oxymoron, because there's this sense where God wants us to thrive and bear fruit, so he calls us to be patient in suffering. And when you think about it, that's a remarkable bar to set for the worst moment of your life, to have that as a goal for the worst times of our existence. So this is something we really want to understand, and this is something we want to understand because God must make a potent and powerful grace available to us in order to enjoy and experience the kind of patience that he describes here in his word. So, how do we know if we're achieving that goal? How do we know if we are becoming more patient in suffering? Well, I want to give you three marks of patience in suffering. Three marks that we're going to cover this morning. You'll know that you're becoming more patient in suffering if or by, mark number one, how we wait for fruit. This is how we know, by how we wait for fruit. So, the first mark in this passage calls for a kind of patient fruit inspection. He opens by saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, and then he illustrates what he's talking about by saying, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. So, the idea here is that suffering is like farming, where the farmer works hard for fruit But the farmer also recognizes that there are some things that are entirely and totally and inexplicably outside of his control. And so after doing all he knows to do each and every day, he waits patiently. He doesn't reap prematurely. He waits for both sets of rains. He waits for the early rain, and he waits for the late rain. So all of a sudden, right out of the gate, we've arrived, I think, at the most difficult part of suffering, that we are to wait while suffering. We are to wait for fruit to come. We are to wait to reap. And I, I say the most terrible because when I think about it, that's the most difficult thing for me. Are you with me in that? Are you like me in that? I'm terrible at waiting. Fast food is too slow for me. High-speed internet takes too long for me. Don't even get, get me started on how everybody in Tallahassee drives the speed limit. I can't tell you how that... I mean, up up north, you take the speed limit, you add 10, and that's your baseline. If you drive the speed limit, your life is at risk. I'm an impatient person. We are impatient people. I read on Friday, Google reports that one in every four people abandon a web page if it doesn't load in four seconds. Five seconds too long. I've got a busy life. i got things I need to do. And sometimes the biggest challenge for us in suffering is that we must wait because fruit takes time. It's more than a keystroke away. It's more than swiping our credit card and owning something immediately. David Powelson said of suffering, God sets about a long, slow answering. We try to make it a quick fix. See, what I want you to understand and what I want to have you lock in your brains this morning is that part of what makes suffering suffering is that it lingers. Part of what makes suffering suffering is that it requires us to wait. Part of what makes suffering suffering is that it does not resolve. We can't just muscle through it. If we could muscle through it, it wouldn't be suffering. We're just like Job. Maybe we're at the top of our game like Job was and then God debases us in some way and we must wait. Our prayers appear unanswered. The trial continues. The fruit tree is barren and God has begun his answer. Oh, his answer is coming. It's coming to us, but like David Powelson said, it's a long, slow answer. Well, think about the areas that you're, you're suffering right now or maybe areas you've suffered in the past and how, how the fruitlessness of the situation, the lack of resolution, the lack of answering is, is a large part of the burden that one bears. For instance, a loved one is making poor choices And you've been praying for them for years and years, and yet when you honestly assess where they are, there's no change, no interest, no fruit, and you suffer because they seem lost, and it doesn't appear like that's going to change in the near future whatsoever. And yet through this passage, God is whispering to us this morning, wait patiently for the latter rains. You've been crying out to God because you have this physical condition, and there's been no change, and you feel it affects you. It hinders your ability to be a spouse. It hinders your ability to serve God in the ways you want or to serve the church, but still you suffer, and there's no breakthroughs, no relief, no fruit, and God whispers through us this morning through James chapter 5, wait patiently for the latter rains. Or maybe the doctor says to you, yeah, it's It's depression. It's why you get up under a dark cloud every morning. It's why life seems so joyless and colorless and gray and passionless. It's why it's been that way for as long as you can remember. And sure, you've prayed, but there's no healing, there's no heart, there's no life, and it seems like there's no hope, and God speaks to us again through James 5 and says, wait patiently for the late rains, the latter rains, they're coming, I'm sending to you, but you must wait patiently. Or maybe for you, it's you look at your child and you think they have been given so much by God, but they are bearing so little fruit for God. There is no zeal, no heart, no interest, no faith whatsoever. All around me is barrenness. Who can relate to that? God says, Job can relate to that. Wait patiently like Job did. See, James says, wait patiently, be patient until the coming of the Lord. That's, that's the mark there. That's how long we're called to be patient, until Jesus returns. And what we're learning through this fifth chapter of James is that how we wait for fruit tells us whether we are growing patient in suffering. How we wait for fruit to come will tell us, will inform us, will engage us on whether we are growing patient in suffering, because your suffering is just like my suffering. Suffering is a war of attrition. The more we hurt, the less we want to wait. The more we hurt, the less we wait, because we get worn down by troubles, worn down by sadness, worn down by weariness. It's why James says in verse 8, you also establish your heart. Boy, that's what we all need. Establish your heart. Why? Because trials trouble the heart. They shake the heart. They sadden the heart. They destabilize the heart. So a key to waiting, the waiting heart, is an established heart. To have a waiting heart is to have an established heart. If we have an established heart, we are cultivating a waiting heart. And to have an established heart means that we are waiting for a better future. It's a future where Christ is coming at a minimum. I mean, God may bring the late rains in this life, and he often does because he's gracious and he loves us. But we may wrestle on until the Lord returns or until we die. My, my story may have this incredible ending to it, but whether the fruit comes now or the fruit comes when he returns, I can wait patiently because I have an established heart. See, there's a sense where God in this passage is, is letting us know where the, whole thing is, where the whole thing is headed, where your present suffering is headed. It will be resolved because it's headed in a certain direction that ultimately Jesus is coming back. Oh, I may may step in and resolve it in this life, heal you in this life, bring blessing in this life. And again, he often does that for his glory and for our good. But even if the healing never comes, Jesus is returning. Even if the healing never comes, there is a resolution. This is kind of the spoiler alert, you know? You know what a spoiler alert is? It's, It's when the ending of a movie or an is revealed. I read an article recently by a bunch of San Diego researchers that found that a majority of people tested preferred spoiler alerts when they were reading written works. You say, well, why would that take place? And they said, people want to know where the whole story is going. They want to know. They want to derive something from that. They want to know where they're headed as they're reading, as they're putting the work in. James reminds us Of where the whole story is going he reminds you of where that trial is going and therefore we can establish our heart and in doing so that forms the first mark it's how we wait for fruit mark number two you'll know by how we talk under pressure how we talk under pressure so the first mark dealt with patient fruit inspecting. This one is about patient speech. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, see, God knows something about us. God knows that suffering acts upon the soul in a unique way, that suffering exposes the human Heart. When the fingers of pain squeeze the heart, what inevitably happens is what's in the heart is squeezed out of the heart. If if I take a sponge, for instance, and I plunge a sponge sponge in water and then I lift it up and I squeeze it, if I were to do that right now on the stage, what was in the sponge would come out of the sponge and it would pour all over the floor. If God takes a heart, if God takes a life that has a heart, And he plunges it into suffering. And the trial begins to squeeze the heart. What's in the heart comes out of the heart. And what's in the heart begins to get spoken by the mouth of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said in Luke 6, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, we begin to speak out of what fills our hearts. And what suffering does is suffering comes along and it squeezes us. It squeezes the sponge of our heart. And we begin to see things within our heart that we never knew were there. And this is what you must hear. The suffering did not put them in our heart. Original sin put them in our heart. or unsinful patterns, the flesh, put them in our heart. And so suffering squeezes us. And what's in the heart comes out. Suffering squeezes us, and sometimes complaining or mumbling or grumbling comes out. And by the way, this is part of the reason why God sends suffering to some people, to reveal their heart, to expose our heart, that we might see in reality what we need to deal with, that we might confess it to God, and that we might move forward in pleasing Him. And and we're all the same this way, you know. I, I'm sure you, you know. Give me a sunny day with no worries, and man, am I godly! You would be impressed with how godly I really am. But touch me with a toothache, or an unexpected bill, or an unwarranted criticism, and just just watch me transform into some kind of grumbling goofball, to the point where the world can grow dark, life can become pointless, and God can grow impotent, powerless very small. He shrinks before me because I'm in the middle of a trap. What's happening? Well, my heart is getting squeezed. Mumbling and grumbling begins to come out. There's a reason why C.S. Lewis once said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But there's something else I want to share with you about this grumbling aspect. Grumbling grumbling is most sinfully satisfying to us when it's actually directed towards other people, when it's directed towards flesh and blood. So God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites, Exodus chapter 14. He's, they start the trip, and soon thereafter, they run out of water. But rather than saying after they've run out of water, well, the same God who parts the water can probably, possibly, maybe, Provide water for us. Rather than saying that, they begin to grumble. But they begin to grumble against Moses, which is really grumbling against God. But but it's always a it's often a horizontal thing. Our grumbling against God moves horizontally to grumble against our boss, against our spouse, against our kids. So in the next chapter, life gets hard for them, even harder for them. They're grumbling against Moses. I mean, keep in mind this is a people that had by night a pillar of fire, cloud by day leading them, pillar of fire by night, and yet they're complaining cause, to Moses, about Moses, because Moses is closer to them. So God creates the hardship, Moses gets the blame. It's human nature. When in pain, we complain. And by the way, if you're here and you're called to leadership, I hope you understand that part of the burden of leadership is to be the object of people's grumbling. It's, it's the nature of leadership. But here's what James wants us to understand about, about that, about that whole complex. He's saying, God is listening intently. Isn't that what we learned from Job? That God, it, it seems like God is distant. It seems like God is silent. And we discover in those last four chapters, oh, no, no, he's been there. He's been listening intently. He is the judge standing at the door, according to James, taking notes. And this is hard to come to grips with because some of the most sinful things we say in life, we say and we do when we're suffering. Because there's this way that our mind works where we think that our pain awards us some kind of free parking pass to just speak any way that we please or to speak any way we want, a kind of of get-out-of-judgment-free card where God doesn't hold us accountable. It's kind of a speech-free, a heart-free zone that exists around us because God's so empathetic with us in our suffering. He can't relate to suffering. He's not a human being, but I am suffering. And so we can go off on a rant. We can drop a few F-bombs. We can blame other people. We can be miserable because this particular suffering comes with an exemption for moi. And we all do it, don't we? And when you're a Christian, it can appear very godly. Well, I have, I have some concerns. No, you don't. You, you complain too much is what you do. And you say, well, what's the difference? Well, the presence of faith is the difference between complaining and having legitimate concerns. Grumbling says, our fellowship group stinks. I don't even want to go tonight. Faith says, yeah, we've got areas we need to grow in, and I want to help. See, grumbling suffocates. Faith breathes life and hope into a situation. So James says, don't rumble against one another for this reason, so that you may not be judged. And remember, the judge is standing at the door. So to murmur against one another is to judge others and to become liable of being judged ourselves. And God wants us to, to help. God wants us to see something that he helped Job to see, and that is that he listens to how we talk under pressure. He listens to how we talk under pressure. So, pay attention because that's one of the marks. It's how we talk under pressure. And here's the third mark. This is mark number three. You'll know by how we see or will know by how we see Job's Blessing. I'm going to explain that in just a second. How we see Job's blessing. So James moves to these examples. Then in verse 10, he says, "As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord." And then in verse 11, he kind of he kind of focuses it even more and targets his example into Job but not before he says at the beginning of verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, I had to to stop for a second and just just think about that when I first read it and think about how, how blessing is being defined here because blessing here is not defined as wealth or worldly success or even a kind of obedience. It's it's not tied to greatness. It's not tied to performance. It's not tied to achievement as defined by the world. Success is linked to suffering and specifically how we endure suffering. So, who's blessed according to James? It's the one who walks in a steadfast manner, In other words, it's not just the one who finishes the race, the one who gets through the trial. It's not just the results. Hey, you're done with the trial. You survived the trial. It's not about that at all. That's not what God is pointing out here. That's not what James is trying to celebrate for us. It's how we endured the trial. In other words, it's not just the end of the process. It's it's how we get there. It's how we see God's blessing in the trial. Because the way God scores... The, the way God scores this or measures this is more like an Olympic diver than it is like NASCAR. You know, you know, in NASCAR, whoever finishes the race first wins. It doesn't matter if in every single lap prior to the final one, that guy or that woman was in last place. It doesn't matter if they were weak and had a horrible race. If at the end they finish the race and they cross first, they win. But in diving, it's really the opposite. In diving, they are scored not merely by finishing the dive, but on every step of the process, the entire process. All of their form at every step matters. And so James is kind of picking up that idea. He says, blessed are those who are steadfast, the divers. Blessed are those who are steadfast, who pay attention to form how they're responding to God throughout the process just like Job did. Then then he moves to Job's example, just like Job did. And and then he goes on to say, this is how Job experienced blessing because he wants us to see it the same way. This is how Job experienced blessing. He had questions, but he addressed his questions to God. He had pain, but he addressed his pain to God. In other words, he never, ever, 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 ever gave up on God. And because of that, eventually he saw, and these are the words from James, God's purpose in suffering. But in order to get there and see the purpose of God, it required of him patience and steadfastness. I mean, patience and steadfastness to a degree where this man wished he was never born. Do you remember those passages, chapter 3, chapter 10? Do you remember where he was? He wished he was never born. Job was steadfast, though he wished he was never born certain circumstances that broke into his life that granted his best friends the liberty to speculate over all the ways that he had sinned, all the ways he had sinned against God. They were totally off the rails, but this was God's purpose. You ready? This is how it's defined, to show himself as compassionate and merciful. That's the end of verse 11. How the Lord is compassionate and and merciful. Let's go back and read the latter half of that entire verse. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, meaning in Job's life, and this is what it revealed how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that's why Job was steadfast, because God was merciful. Job was restored because God is compassionate. That's the end. That's the end game. That's what really the story of Job reveals. And that story is set in Scripture as an example to, for us. It's to remind us that regardless of what we're going through right now, the thing that you walked in here that's breaking your heart, the burden that is stooping you over, the one that, that stabs you with fear, That very thing where it seems like God is not moving. God is not resolved. He wants you to know this this morning. That there is a design and God is kind. He's merciful and compassionate. There is a design. God is kind. There is a purpose. He's merciful and compassionate. There is a design and God is kind. So when Job loses his house, his assets, everything he owns, there is a design and God is kind. So when Job loses his entire reputation and he becomes repudiated throughout the community, there is a design, and God is kind. Dave, are you standing in front of us and saying that even, yeah, even when Job lost his children... See, if we don't get the main point as it's revealed in Scripture, if we don't get the main point as it's revealed in James, we're going to forget who it is that we serve. We're going to forget the character of God. We're going to forget who we're really waiting for. Because this whole passage is to remind us that we're waiting for the Lord. Remember the Lord? He's the Lord, the one who came the first time. He's coming a second time, but that's to remind us that he came the first time as well. And out of his incomprehensible love, which was fixed upon us from eternity past, he sacrificed himself in our place. That's how much he loves us. That's how kind he is to us. That's how compassionate he is to us. He became our substitute bearing the penalty upon himself that we deserved because of our sin, and then through his grace, he declared us righteous. Through his grace, he adopted us into his family. Through his grace, he filled us with his Holy Spirit. Through his grace, he guarantees us that we will finish the race. That's the one who is returning for us. And if we don't know him the way Scripture portrays him, or if we don't know him the way James reveals him, then his return is going to be meaningless. His return is going to be irrelevant to us. Because who we wait for really determines how we wait. Think about that. Who we wait for determines how we wait. You know, in Pennsylvania back when I was married 32 years ago, um, you used to need a blood test to get married. And, and I noticed on that week before I was married th- that I waited for my wedding day and my bride far differently than I waited for the blood test that I needed to get taken from the doctor who needed to draw blood. When I thought about one, it provoked joy. When I thought about the other, it provoked pain. Because one presented my wife to me, the other presented a needle to me. One represented the future to me, the other represented a hurdle to me. For which one do you think I was most eager? Was it getting stuck by a needle or having a honeymoon? Who we wait for determines how we wait. We must always remember that the one calling us to wait for his promises is the same one who died for us, the same one who loved us, the same one who is patient with us. I think of that Peter in second chap Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, I think of that passage. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to reach repentance. So yeah, he's a judge, but he's a patient judge. And when he stands at the door, that's a door of invitation. That's not an execution. That's not an execution behind that door. That is a door of invitation. Because once Jesus rose from the grave, he began this compassionate program of patiently drawing people to himself. Romans chapter 2 says, God's kindness led you to repentance. Maybe you're here today and you've been sensing like, God's doing, somebody's doing something because I feel this inexplicable draw to God. And I can't locate it in anything but something outside of myself. I don't understand why I'm here entirely. I've just felt like I need to be moving toward God. I I feel like I'm becoming more spiritual. His kindness is leading you because he is a patient God. And he doesn't want us to start with our suffering and define him out of our suffering. In other words, begin there and then move towards his character and define his character based upon our suffering. No, he wants us to start with his character as it is revealed in Scripture, his character as it is revealed in James, and then move towards our suffering. And this is how it is revealed in James This is what it says from James to us. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. What was the purpose of the Lord? That the Lord would be compassionate and merciful. What are you telling yourself about the Lord this morning? What are you telling yourself about God right now? What were you walking in here telling yourself about God? I think we need to bring our thoughts and our meditation in line with what Scripture says about God. It's funny, this past week I was with John Stewart. John is one of the founding members of Four Oaks and has been a good friend to Kim and I since our arrival here. This past week we were enjoying some fellowship together and we were talking about where we tend to go when we get discouraged. And, and John just kind of made this, this comment in passing. He says, well, I don't know what I would do if it, wasn't I, if it wasn't for the exercise of just sitting down and beginning to write out displays of God's goodness to me when I'm discouraged. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you talking about it? You know, what, what does that mean? He said, well, yeah, that's, he said, that, that's what I do. When I start to tank, I sit down and I make a list of where God's been merciful, and it begins to restore my perspective on who God is. I thought, oh, I need to do that. See, that's our biggest problem, by the way, And that's a great way to reverse the drift, by the way, to use John's idea. We begin to reflect on the goodness of God, because what it does is it reinstalls God's purpose back into our story. It reinstalls God's purpose back into our pain. It reminds us, through the exercise, God's design and God is time. God is kind. In other words, the, the, the memory of God's providence begins to bring Perspective. So, it's appropriate that this passage ends, and our study on Job ends, this entire series ends, kind of reclaiming and rejoicing in the character of God, because it wrenches us away from the idea of serving a hard God, which if you think about it, is just another oxymoron. the God who called us is the one who loves us, and he is not hard, but according to James, he is merciful and compassionate. He has a design, and he is kind. Job discovered it. Jesus embodied it, and we are objects of it.